Welcome to the External Medicine Podcast. We are here with Parker Rogers, a PhD candidate in economics at UCSD. In the fall of 2023, he will be doing a postdoc in aging and health research at the National Bureau of Economic Research. And in the fall of 2024, he'll be joining the School of Business at Indiana University as an assistant professor. Parker, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, do you have any financial disclosures? Nope. All right. So let's talk about your paper, Regulating the Innovators, Approval Costs and Innovation in Medical Technologies. How did this paper come about? Yeah, that's a good question. So I... Um... I first started thinking about this issue after I, I, I wrote that pa the paper on uh, civil war limb procurement. Uh, I was really interested in um, just medical technologies broadly uh, and what kind of institutions are sort of interact with innovators in the space to, to bring about more technology and more technological change. Um, and I was kind of doing a lot of research on uh, the FDA and, and their policies and regulations. And I stumbled across uh, these particular types of regulations uh, and regulatory changes that the FDA uses. Um, so in the medical device space, uh, medical devices are, are regulated in three different classes. They're sort of class three, which is high risk. You have class two, which are moderate risk devices and class one devices are low risk. And I found these policies where the FDA essentially moves medical device types from class three to two or class two to one. And it kind of a light, a light went off in my head about, you know, this could potentially serve as a nice natural experiment to study the effects of regulation on innovation, right? So we know that there's probably, uh, that regulation has dramatic effects on innovation, but we don't quite, we didn't quite know the, the size of those effects. Um, and I think a goal of, of one of my goals is to kind of look at the different alternative policies that that we could use uh, to kind of deal with with new technologies and, and make them safe and reliable. So that's kind of how I stumbled on on the paper uh, initially. You mentioned the different classifications: class one, class two, class three. How does the FDA actually determine which devices belong in which class? And maybe it would be helpful to give some examples of the sorts of devices uh, for our audience. Yeah, definitely. So as I mentioned, there, there's sort of a three-tier risk classification system that's used at the FDA. So class three devices are those deemed as high risk. Uh, these are all new or sort of totally novel innovations for which we don't have a prior history of uh, you know adverse events and safety profile, and that that means that it's useful uh, potentially to regulate these technologies uh, more stringently by requiring clinical trials to to validate and show how safe those products are. Um, and those include things like uh, cardiac pacemakers. Right, most implantable devices fall within that category. Uh, and importantly, that that those regulations are quite costly, right? And that, that's, I think, important for my paper is that the, those regulations can cost as much as $75 million um, on average to, to, you know, to navigate for, for these firms. And that's according to a survey that was that was done among uh, industry device manufacturers. Um, so there's very costly regulations for, for these firms to navigate. Um, when you say costly, you mean that it costs those firms in total $75 million to go through with those clinical trials or regulatory hoops? Is that what you're saying? That's right. Yes. Uh, yes. It, it basically, they've done, they did a survey and they asked, how expensive are these regulations for your firm? And these firms kind of described or, or you know gave numbers that they associate with these types of regulations. And the upshot is that it's really costly. Right, and it takes a lot of time as well. It takes years for these devices to be approved. Um, sometimes, so for class two devices, these devices are deemed as moderate risk. Uh, so you can think of these things as you know they're not implantable, but they do pose risks still. So you can think of you know X-ray machines as a good example here of of a class two uh, device, and 
These still cost about $24 million on average to approve according to industry surveys. So it's still costly, right? It still, it takes about 10 months to, to approve these products. So, you know, these still, these types of barriers still act as a deterrent or a potential deterrent for innovators who are not privy to the FDA's regulatory process or that don't have money to cover the upfront costs of approval. Class one products are those that are pretty low risk. Uh, you can think of things in kind of the extreme cases, things like um, tongue depressors, right? It's really not um, all that dangerous, uh, but it also includes things like in my analysis, I'm, I'm looking at device types that are moved from class two to one. And these device types include things like uh, ventilator tubing, right? So it's a component of a device that's pretty critical. If the tubing fails, a patient is highly at risk. Um, and so I think of these products as still being potentially sort of meaningful as far as innovation goes, but then also there is some risk involved with the use of those devices. And how does liability interact with these different classifications? For example, if you get your device, it's class three versus class one, how and you're sued in some way, how how does that play out? Yeah, so that's an important distinction. So for class three devices, uh, when you receive approval from the FDA, you are protected from product design defects uh, after that approval. So you, when you're sued in court for, for any sort of adverse events that have occurred from using your device, the, this, this approval protects you from any sort of legal damages. And so, you know, that's because of a, of a doctrine in the U S constitution called federal preemption to get a little bit wonky out here. Uh, this doctrine basically says that if there's this federal law that, that a firm or person has, uh, sort of uh, adhered to, a state law is sort of trumped by that federal law. So if you get a federal approval, then a state tort claim, which is, which comes in the, the the by way of you know a, a lawsuit about a, a design defect, um, would be preempted uh, by that federal approval. So that's that's how that protection works. For class two devices, it's less sure. There's a lot more legal ambiguity there. Um, I've found many cases where uh, federal preemption has has been triggered uh, in in you know lawsuits related to adverse events of those types of devices. So I would say that those types of devices are sort of somewhat protected. They're not fully protected like class three devices because class three devices um, have the enjoy the benefit of having a Supreme Court verdict saying that they are protected. Whereas class two devices don't quite have that luxury. And so you have this partial exposure. Whereas class one devices, you know, there's no approval involved there. And so they're they're not protected at all. So let's talk a little bit more about your paper. So you're looking at devices that are moved from class three to class two and devices that are moved from class two to class one. Uh, how common are these downregulation events? Yeah. And to kind of motivate like why I'm even looking at this in, in the first place, um, you know, one of the issues in when you have new technologies, I've talked a lot about why new technologies are so important um, and that they can save a lot of lives. One of the issues is that new technologies on the one hand can kind of dramatically improve social well-being, but they can also inflict harm. And so there's this general uncertainty about whether a new product will actually do what it what its inventors say it will. And, and there's also a potential asymmetric information, which, it, which means that the inventor may know more about the quality of its product than the consumer. And so there's this sort of uh, this um, disconnect there between the two. And so there are a couple of ways of kind of combating this. One is to regulate new products through mandatory pre-market testing, right? That's an approach that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration takes. That's sort of an ex-ante approach, which means that it's done before the thing is brought to market. Uh, another approach is uh, to deter harm with the threat of litigation like we talked about, right? So these are two different mechanisms that, you can, that, that we could potentially use as a society to mitigate the harm of these new products. 
Um, and there's really a long debate that goes back decades about which of these two approaches is better, um, regulation or innovation, or regulation or litigation, excuse me. And that is, I think, the purpose of the paper is to disentangle precisely what the effects of these two different approaches are and how they kind of measure up to one another. So as you asked, I'm looking at these deregulation events that happen kind of across the last uh, four decades. Um, so the class two to one events that I'm analyzing, the ones that move uh, device types from moderate risk to low risk are basically almost all happening back in the 1990s. Um, they haven't happened for decades. Actually, there's recently one that happened only a few years ago. Uh, but before that, there hadn't happened. One of those types of events hadn't happened for quite a long time. And those types of events, uh, you know, don't happen very often because it's kind of cumbersome for the for the FDA as an agency to handle so many devices and make decisions on them. So it often takes a measure, an act of Congress, to push them to move on deregulating those types of devices. The class three to the class three devices that are moved from class three to two, <clears throat> those happen across the last four decades. They're 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 much more sort of scattered about the years. Um, and they, they happen, I think, you know, a couple happen every one or two years. They don't happen very often. Uh, but when they do happen, kind of, it, it serves as a nice natural experiment, which I use in the paper. Are there any examples of upregulating the class, whereas we thought this moderately dangerous device is actually much more dangerous than we previously thought, so we'll make it a class three, or does that not happen? Yeah, so there definitely are um, cases where that has happened. Um, just a few that, that are kind of on the top of my mind are these kind of automatic external defibrillators. Uh, and this happened back in 2015, where the FDA moved them from class two to class three, uh, because there was a high failure rate. Um, you know, obviously that would not be very great if people were relying on this product, um, and it wasn't doing its intended job. Um, some other examples are kind of metal on hip or sorry, metal on metal hip implants. It's happened in 2016. It's moved from class two to three, so back up to three after it was, was after it was uh, down classified from three to two. And this happened because there was a high risk of infection and you know bone loss and revision surgery after those implants, and so they decided to upregulate those. Um, but I will emphasize that these are much rarer, right? I think it's because the FDA is so cautious in their approach. Uh, that it almost never happens that they upregulate. It's almost always the case that they're down that they're down classifying these products. Um, and I collected kind of six different events where this was the case where they upregulated um, for my analysis, and I decided not to use those as natural experiments because I think it would be difficult to disentangle the fact that there's a whole bunch of negative press around these devices, which caused them to be to be upclassified. Which, like, you know, if you found an effect on innovation, you could attribute that effect to just the fact that there's a lot of negative press about these devices and a lot of bad things happen. And so people just didn't want to use them as much. Right. So I couldn't use those as, as a natural experiment in my case, but uh, certainly it does happen, but pretty rarely. Okay, so let's let's dive into the weeds a bit with your paper. So you you have these events that you found of two to one and three to two. And what do you do then? Yeah, so uh, and these are these are kind of interesting. These are interesting events when when considered together, because class three to two events kind of move device types from high risk to or high regulation to moderate regulation. Uh, but then class two to one events move device types from regulation to litigation only. So that it allows a really kind of comprehensive analysis of these of the different alternative policies that the FDA could use. Right? They could they could use less regulation, or they could just rely only on litigation. Um, and so the way that I use these events is basically I, I collect a set of control device types or comparison groups, right? And and the way that I do that is I'm I'm pretty agnostic about that collection of comparison groups because I want to show that it really doesn't matter what comparison group you're using. 
the effects I find are just really dramatic on on innovation, product safety, and market structure. So I collect a, a comparison group, you know, which includes intuitively similar device types. So, for example, if you're looking at a spinal implant device, uh, an intuitive comparison would be a spinal fixation system, which is often used in the same spinal fusion surgery. And so this type, that type of comparison is helpful because you might see similar sort of scientific progress absent the regulation, but that one of, but the fact that one of those devices was affected and the other wasn't allows me to kind of see what the effects of regulation might be. But I want to emphasize that I also use a, 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 you know, a broad set of other control groups, comparison groups that include kind of a match uh, comparison group, which basically takes device types that have similar uh, baseline characteristics. Um, and then a couple other comparison groups. And I find our results really don't change much, as I said. Um, can you tell us? Can you tell us about some of the other control groups that you chose, and also maybe a little bit about the process of like going through and and, and tagging those as similar in this way or similar in that way? I'm just sort of curious. Yeah. So the match procedure was basically a data driven procedure, right? So I took a treated device type, right, and I looked through all the device types. Um, that were kind of similarly classified, so not too different in that respect, uh, but that had similar baseline averages of things like adverse event counts, so like hospitalizations, mortality, um, similar patenting rates, so similar number of patents filed within that device type, um, and, and other measures. So they were similar on that dimension. Um, so that was kind of me kind of throwing my hands up, letting the data do it. Uh, I have, have kind of a more agnostic device type group, which includes all of the, the universe of uh, untreated device types. So that's me kind of saying, hey, this is me not touching it, just throwing throwing all the device types at it. Um, and then um, I also have a, a group of device types that were treated beyond the sample window. So after kind of my sample cuts off, so my data cuts off in 2017, I kind of get all those device types that were treated later by the FDA to kind of say, hey, these are comparable in the sense that they were also deemed by the FDA as somewhat safe. And so uh, they seem like a reasonable comparison group. And again, I just find that the effects on all of my outcomes are just so strong that I that the choice of comparison just really doesn't make much of a difference. Um, and most of this is just driven by the dramatic increase in innovation uh, and firm entry and increases in product safety that are, that's happening in the affected groups. So what's the punchline then? You take these class three to class two and class two to class one um, down classing events. You have four different control groups. And what do you find different between those, those groups that were down classified and the match controls that were not? Yeah, so I find a set of, of of three striking results, I think. Uh, so first, you have results related to innovation. Second, I have results related to market structure. And then third, I have results related to product safety. The reason why I had three different results is because I wanted to show precisely kind of all of the different trade-offs of, of regulating new technologies in the space. So for innovation, I find that as you move from class three to two, you see a 400% increase in the number of patents filed within these treated device types relative to all these different types of comparison groups. Um, that's a pretty dramatic increase in innovation, such a high-tech market like medical devices. Um, I also find surprisingly, this may be kind of less intuitive, that when you deregulate from class three to two, and also from two to one, the patents that are filed are actually receiving more citations and they have higher market values, which suggests that the, the innovation itself is kind of higher quality, right? So you're not only getting more innovation, you're getting higher quality innovation. Um, and I find that these, these increases in innovation are concentrated at these small and inexperienced firms. So that's because there's potentially frictions in this market when small firms have to kind of get financing to cover the approval process and inexperienced firms have a hard time navigating the approval process itself because it's just a complex system. Um, 
for the second result, market structure, I find uh, when you move from class three to two, a 1,000% increase in the number of new firms entering these device types. Again, that's really a really stark increase. And the reason why that would matter is because it actually drives prices down of, of these of the, of the medical procedures that actually use the deregulated devices. So for example, one of the things that one of the device types that I'm looking at is a spinal implant. I find a that the prices of medical procedures like a spinal fusion surgery, which uses the implants, go down by about 35%. So you're kind of seeing a big change in the dynamism of these of these medical technology markets. Uh, when after these deregulation events, you're also seeing firm entry, I should say, uh, when you move from class two to one, right? And so th that suggests that litigation is more conducive to firm entry than than um, regulation. And then lastly, for, for the product safety outcomes, I find that as you move from class three to two, there's really not much happening on that front. Uh, you don't see increases in, in adverse events. Um, or decreases either. It's sort of an insignificant estimate. It's slightly, slightly positive, but ne slightly negative for some measures of adverse events. And I don't put too much weight on that because the FDA kind of ex is explicitly choosing device types uh, that are class three for deregulation that would that are safe enough for for deregulation. And so you might expect to see kind of no results there. But for class two to one. I find that product safety actually improves. So you see, I actually find that that inventors are emphasizing product safety advancements in their patent texts much more frequently. So they're saying, "Hey, we're making improvements to these these components of the medical device that might improve safety," and they're doing that much more often. And you're also seeing that uh, the adverse events uh, related to these device types are actually going down. Uh, so, so I'm measuring that using kind of hospitalizations, life-threatening events, and, and deaths. Um, and that suggests that that litigation is actually a better tool at, at, at um, increasing product safety for these types of products and regulation. And that's possibly because class two regulations are often deemed uh, by even like the National Academy of Medicine as being insufficient for establishing product safety. And so when you expose firms to the legal liability risk, that actually just increases their their incentives uh, to improve product safety, and that's why you may see those these increases in in product safety um, at the at the at the uh, the end of it. Um, and I, I want to emphasize there too that for those types of events for class two to one, the FDA is using a really crude measure to choose which devices to deregulate. So. Um, you shouldn't think of it as some sophisticated process. They're essentially just using uh, baseline adverse events. Um, at least back in the '90s, the one that I was looking at, uh, they're using uh, baseline adverse event counts to determine which ones are kind of safe enough. But note that I can actually match on that particular adverse event count in my comparison group to kind of ensure that I'm having a reasonable comparison there. So, I think overall these three results really seem to point out. Both the the effects of regulation are quite large. Quantifying those effects are, is important, uh, but then also, interestingly, that litigation can play an important role in making medical technologies safer, um, especially when compared to class two regulations that are currently employed by by the by the FDA. So, what would you say to someone who says, "Hey, these findings are very interesting." but they're just a function of the fact that these are the special safest devices that are able to be moved from three to two or two to one. And therefore they aren't the same as the controls, the other controls that you're using. Yeah. There are a couple of things that, that, that I could say to that. So first um, I really can't say much about what the right approach uh, to regulating totally new technologies is. I think it's very, very reasonable to assume that we might need regulation for those types of technologies, right? It's just really hard to know how effective a given technology is uh, when it's totally new. Uh, and, it, you know, frankly, consumers may not trust it. 
until they see kind of the information that they want to see on, um, you know, safety testing and things like that. But what I can say is that for the device types that I'm looking at, for the class two device types particularly, as I said, the FDA is using a pretty crude measure here to deregulate. Um, they're just using baseline adverse event counts. And I actually show that according to their own measure. So this measure they use is basically a score. And the higher the score is means basically the more dangerous the device type is and the less likely it is to be deregulated. As I kind of do different estimates about what the effects of deregulation are for, for devices with different score values, I find that the most dangerous devices, those that are score highest or least likely to be deregulated, are actually the ones that, that see the greatest uh, safety improvements and the greatest increases in, in, in patenting. And so that suggests that my results would, would generalize to other class two products uh, that aren't affected by this policy. Now, you know, that I think is not the case for class three to two events uh, because the FDA is much more deliberate in those situations, but they're not specifically choosing to deregulate those products because of some innovative potential, the potential for many new products to come out in that space. They're doing it simply because they think the product's safe enough. And usually that's because the product has been out on the market long enough, which I think means that potentially there's less potential for innovation in those types of products because a lot of innovation has already happened. And so I think that taken together, these, these types of analyses suggest that we could see these types of results for other unaffected products as well. And they may even be larger. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far to say that, you know, these super new and potentially risky products shouldn't be regulated. It's that some of these established devices that are already out uh, may merit uh, a reevaluation of their regulatory status. In the switch from class two to class one, can you comment at all on the differences in product safety with respect to large versus small firms? Like I could envision mm. a small firm, you know, the, the worst that could happen to them is they go bankrupt. So maybe they would be more likely to take risks on newly uh, down-classed products, whereas maybe a larger firm would be a little bit more concerned from a legal liability standpoint since they have much more to lose. Yeah, that's actually a key component to the paper is considering exactly that, that phenomenon between the difference in exposure to legal liability from small versus large firms. So one of the ways that I test legal liability as the mechanism for, for this change in product safety Right, I've cl I claimed earlier that when you move from class two to one, you expose firms to legal liability risk, and that might, you know, that increases product safety. I kind of back that claim up by leveraging variation in exposure to legal liability risk from the fact these small firms can declare bankruptcy, and these large firms really can't as readily. And so, what that means is the small firms face less expected legal damages because they can just declare bankruptcy at these really large payouts that that are that are sort of judged on them. And so what that means is they face a, a lower incentive to to improve product safety after deregulation because they face less liability risk. And so what I find consistent with that is that larger firms that are less protected in economics, we call that judgment proof, or basically they're not they're not protected from the, those legal judgments. Those large firms are the ones that increase their innovation in on the safety aspect the most. So they actually increase their safety emphasis the most in their patent texts. And they also are showing the largest decline in adverse events. And these small firms are not increasing safety as much, though they are, it's not like they're decreasing their safety emphasis. They're just not doing it as much. And they're showing smaller decreases in adverse events. So indeed, kind of consistent with those, those, those different incentives, you're seeing these large firms really moving the needle on uh, product safety because they're seeing uh, such a dramatic increase in legal liability risk. So at the end of your paper, you include some back of the envelope calculations on costs and benefits. 
Can you walk us through some of the calculations that you do? Yeah. Uh, so this, you know, I would call them back of the envelope because they're they're kind of quick and dirty. Uh, there's more sophisticated ways about going about uh, doing this if you have the right data. Um, but the way that I did it is I essentially appraise the value of new patents filed, right? I, I appraise the value of changes in healthcare expenditures uh, from these decreased prices. And I also valued uh, the value of a statistical life. So that's just using the EPA's estimate of a statistical life, which is kind of morbid. I get it, but it's a way to, to measure the benefits. Um, and taking all of those different estimates and calculations together, kind of attaching the value of all these different outcomes. Uh, I find that for class three to two events, the benefits of deregulation are about are twice as high as the costs of deregulation. Uh, but I, like I said, I, I don't put a lot of weight on these adverse event on, on the, on the uh, costs of deregulation in this case, because the, the FDA is kind of, more sophisticatedly choosing these different products for deregulation. But, you know, it seems to suggest that the FDA at least should uh, evaluate some of the current class three devices maybe more quickly or act more quickly, given that a lot of their decisions take decades or, you know, as much as 10 years, I would say, to actually finally come to fruition. So if they just act quicker on their actual uh, assessments and potentially, uh, be a little less cautious about about their uh, approaches to these devices. Um, that that may actually improve uh, total social social well being based on these kind of calculations I did. And for class two to one events, uh, the the benefits are about twenty million dollars per year per device type, but you don't see any costs because product safety is improving. And so, if you were to extrapolate those benefits to all current you know, class two devices that were unaffected by these policies, you would see roughly a, a $60 billion uh, increase per, of, of sort of benefits per year, per device type, or per year across all the device types. And that's about a third of the market value of medical devices in the US. So I think the, the value of these types of deregulations of events is quite large. And it comes through this this value generated from new new innovation coming online, decreased prices from, you know, more competition in the markets for medical devices, and potentially increased product safety as well. And I'm, as I said, I'm more confident about generalizing these cost estimates or cost benefit estimates to unaffected class two devices that weren't deregulated because uh, the more dangerous devices were actually seeing bigger. Uh, improvements or greater improvements in innovation and product safety than these less dangerous ones. So, you know, that, that seems to suggest that as you move away to these more dangerous uh, class two devices that you could see the kind of, the kind of benefits I'm seeing here. I'm curious, somebody could look at some of this data and granted the, it sounds like you're more convinced at the evidence behind moving from class two to class one from that partial regulatory standpoint to let's let legal liability and the, the courts force companies uh, and new firms and existing firms to increase innovation and uh, the downstream effect of that product safety. What is the case for having total regulation of those devices in class three? Obviously, the shift from class three to class two includes um you know th these are devices that the FDA is specifically deciding to declass and at that point those devices as you said have already been around for a while there's already been a fair amount of innovation what do you think the value is of having a regulatory agency that's pre-approving devices in that class 3 category rather than it being purely from a legal liability at the onset yeah i think this ties into the fact that a lot of, you know, consumer confidence may be based off of um, approvals from the FDA. And so if a new firm without a longstanding reputation comes in with a new product, it may actually be beneficial for that firm to be able to show through a credible approval process that their product is safe and reliable uh, so that 
um, so that consumers take that take that new product up, especially if it's kind of completely novel. Now, that's kind of what the proponents of these types of regulations say. Obviously, I think the the critics of this these types of regulations would say, and in my paper, I do suggest that small firms actually benefit more from these types of deregulations because they they really have a hard time getting the financing necessary to cover the approval process. Um, and these inexperienced firms find it really hard to navigate regulatory the regulatory process. Um, but as I said, the proponents of the class three regulation seem to say that the, you know there's consumer confidence on the line, and that may play a valuable part in in the actual take up of these products and adoption of these products. And indeed, there's a great paper by uh, Matt Grennan and, and Bob Town on the on the idea that that. FDA regulations do provide valuable information, right? When when products are approved, and so it may be the case of these for these entirely new products that really haven't been before seen that the value of the, of the information behind the FDA approvals is, is kind of outweighs the potential downsides on downstream innovation. But once these products are have been around for a while and we know their safety profile, it seems to be the case that there that, that we can kind of trust them more in other means of assuring product safety might be more effective. I've read some evidence that medical devices are actually easier, have an easier time getting approved by the FDA than other drugs. Do you think that your conclusions around medical devices would generalize to drugs in general? Yeah. So I think there are a couple of Things that may make these make these two products uh, different and distinct, and affect the effects of deregulation distinct across these markets. Um, so drugs are approved in a similar way as class three devices. So I think within class three, when you compare class three devices to drugs, both are subject to clinical trials, right? However, it, it seems to be the case that the medical devices in class three kind of require you know a a smaller patient population than drugs. So some of those drug populations have to be quite, the, the uh, clinical trial samples have to be quite large. Whereas uh, for devices, they can be a, a little bit smaller, which would which kind of would correlate with lower costs. Um, but I would say that they're similar in many ways. So first, as I said, the testing mechanism itself is similar, but also um, brand name drugs and generic drugs both to some degree, are protected from legal liability risk. Uh, generic drugs are definitely kind of have a have pretty ironclad protection from legal liability. Uh, class or, or um, brand name drugs are less protected from legal liability, but they still are face that kind of same dynamic between these two uh, mechanisms or approaches to mitigating harm. And so I think that means that a lot of the lessons that I draw here could be applicable to these markets. And I want to emphasize kind of if for those who are interested, uh, there are many product markets that are that had that face the same dynamic between regulation and litigation. Uh, the transportation industry, the aviation industry, uh, there's over 15,000 different types of consumer products regulated. Um, and that all of these types of products are in some way and some degree protected from legal liability risk. And so, you know, this trade-off I think is important not only for the medical technology space but other spaces as well but certainly I think the lessons I learned here are more directly applicable to this medical technology space um, and I think specifically for brand name and generic drugs there are parallels between class three and class two devices which face similar regulations if you were to rewrite this paper now I know that it was done pretty recently, um, what would be things that you would fix or or do differently the next time? Mm, that, yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, I think, well, some some I, I I'm not done with it yet, so I haven't submitted this to to journals yet for for publication. So I still actually have some things on the docket to look at. Uh, one of the things that I plan on doing is expanding the cost, the price analysis to to many different hospitals. So. One of the limitations in my paper is that I'm only looking at UCS, UCSD healthcare claims data. There's only one hospital, and so you know I'm trying. I'm kind of making heroic uh, extrapolations from that one hospital to kind of talk about a larger phenomenon. 
And so the idea is to kind of expand the data set to get data that covers the entire US. And I'm in the process of getting that data uh, to, to make a stronger assessment on the effects of prices. I mean, the the relationship between market, the, the firm entrance and price is probably pretty uh, intuitive. And, and I expect to find the same types of results, but I think that strengthens the paper a little bit more. Um, and I also plan to do an analysis on comparing kind of the more user-specific products versus the more uh, products that are kind of purchased and acquired by the physician on behalf of the patient. I think that's maybe an interesting distinction here because for many of these products, it's not the patient that actually buys the product. It's the physician who buys it on behalf of the, of the patient, right? So I have products like contact. And then it's the insurance company or the hospital that buys it on behalf of the physician. And then it's the, right, yeah. yeah. Right. It can be pretty, it, it's a, it's a complex market. And so one of the next steps is to kind of look at products where that there isn't that complexity where the consumer actually is the one who's, who's making that decision up front. And that's the case for things like contact lenses. So that's one of the device types that I'm looking at that's moved from class three to two. This was deregulated back in the mid nineties. You know, we all choose which contact lenses we, we, th that we want. I mean, it's a little, it's a little bit of a, uh, a strange process to do that, but uh, we do choose that. And then there's others, there's other products like, uh, like I said, spinal implants, right? Where frankly, the consumer has no idea what's going inside them. I think if I were to, to you know, suggest certain things that the FDA could do better is to improve post-market surveillance of these types of products so that consumers can make better decisions and talk to their doctors about, hey, like this is a product that I know that I've done, that I've seen evidence is a better product than another product. But for now, it's mostly just the physician making the decision on behalf of the patient. And so kind of doing an analysis that compares these two types of product categories, I think would be interesting and seeing how the effects differ uh, across those different types of category of, of products would be is kind of a next step. So those are some things, some things that I actually am planning on doing still. And the the paper is alive is is a live thing, and it's still still developing. But um, more to come on that front. So there are lots of arguments about the FDA, very controversial agency, especially these days. And some of those, so you had people, you have people on one side saying the FDA is too restrictive. They have too, there are too many hoops that companies have to jump through in order to get their product to market. And there's an invisible graveyard of people who are dying as a result of that delay in innovation. And then there's another group of people who think that the FDA is way too lax in what they approve. And they're allowing too many things to be approved that are shown either later to be no better than what we were doing before or ineffective or even harmful. And this is particularly true in cancer research. There's a lot of talk about like inappropriate surrogate endpoints. And, you know, there's also talk of the people who work at the FDA then go work at the companies that they're supposed to be regulating. So, where do you see your paper fitting in in that? maelstrom of a conversation yeah i i think the beauty of economics is i feel like the the answer is always like it depends right um and i think my paper really highlights that well uh for as i said for class three to two events it's really it's really just not too clear to me what you know where regulation stands i think there is a value of a reputational value for the fda that comes from being cautious about the way that it regulates new technologies, right? If they let a if they let a string of of products through that end up killing a lot of people, their reputation is is at stake, and that could affect future decisions by the FDA and future uh, yeah, announcements by them and, and how people adhere to those announcements. Um, and frankly, that kind of highlights a broader uh, issue that the FDA has to deal with, in that there is. Another, I'll, I'll use the same term. This, there's this asymmetric costs. There's asymmetric costs of of overregulating here because what happens is when the FDA uh, overregulates, as you said, there's this invisible graveyard. But by definition, this graveyard of of things that could have saved us all, uh, we don't see it. The public doesn't see it, and so it's hard for us to hold the FDA accountable for those types of things. And 
Whereas when something, when, when, when a device goes, but is let loose, that kills a, a whole bunch of people. It's really obvious to us. We see that it's on the news. You know, you see the, you see all the class action lawsuit ads on TV about this, this type of device that killed a whole bunch of people or that, that's harming a lot of people. And so I think the FDA, you know, responds to those incentives, responds to the fact that it's hard to measure that the sort of uh, the the invisible graveyard of drugs. And that's, I think, of drugs and medical devices. And I think that's one of the purposes of my paper is to highlight exactly what that looks like and how valuable that foregone technology is. Um, so I think it's it's really complicated to talk about what, uh, you know, what we should do with these class three regulations, these really strict regulations that the FDA is doing, except for the fact that, it, as I talked about, the FDA should move sooner on the things that it has deemed appropriate for deregulation. Uh, the contact lens case that I talked about, that took them 10 years to actually finally enact. And so, you know, the timing of these events is kind of like as good as random in the sense it's hard to even predict when they'll actually deregulate something because it takes them so long to actually do it. Um, and this might be because they're under-resourced, right? And who knows? This, it's, they might not have enough resources to actually make these things happen quickly. Uh, and then my paper also says that class two regulations seem to be uh, maybe a, a good candidate for being replaced by uh, legal liability risk, at least for, for many of the class two devices. Um, it suggests that deregulating many class two devices could bring potential benefits for society, or at least that the FDA should you know overhaul or re-examine their the class two regulations uh, to see what can be changed, how it can be approved. Uh, many, as I said, many people are talking about how they're not very effective at what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, there's, there's a couple of papers that came out recently that were really great. It talked about how a lot of devices that are approved in class two are sort of approved because they say that they're like another product that was actually recalled that is dangerous. And so, you know, that's not a super effective way potentially of, of making sure that new products are safe. And so, you know, I guess the recommendation there in the paper is that, you know, reevaluate these class two devices. You know, class one seems to be a great alternative. They're, you're exposing firms to legal liability risk, product safety improves, innovation increases. Uh, but if that's not something that's as palatable to them, maybe they can reevaluate these class two regulations and make um, make changes that are that are needed. We've spoken a lot about the FDA's classification system, and we haven't spoken at all about the European counterpart, the EMA. Um, from doing your research, what have you seen as major differences between the way FDA and the EMA handles? Uh, risk classification, and uh, are the, you think there are things that the FDA should do more, like the EMA, or vice versa? Mm. Yeah. So, one thing that I find in my paper is that there are a lot of new firms that come online right away after deregulation. You might ask yourself, why are they able to come so quickly? And what I find is that a lot of these firms are actually coming from the European Union. So they're European firms that are bringing their technologies to the U.S. Now, why is that the case? Because historically, the European Union had regulations that were much more lenient than U.S. the FDA regulations for medical devices. And so the, the EU kind of acted as a type of regulatory sandbox, right, um, where or a testing ground where firms could go and, you know, market their devices abroad get some safety profile information and then bring their devices to the FDA if they see fit um, after they've kind of observed the product safety profiles. But since 2021, uh, the, FD, the European Union has enacted uh, the MDR, which is the medical device re regulations, which have brought them much more in line with, with uh, US FDA medical device regulations. Uh, they're much more stringent. They require more clinical evidence uh, to demonstrate safety and performance, uh, and especially for high-risk devices, right? Now, there are some benefits, I think, of, of these regulations. They required firms to kind of more accurately track their devices um, and create like a database that tracks devices throughout the patient process. And I think that is actually helpful for, as I said, post-market surveillance, which helps patients make better decisions about the products. Um, 
but they, but it is kind of becoming more similar over time. Uh, and I think the last one I'll say is kind of taking lessons away from the EU versus the US. EU medtech regulations are kind of offer a fascinating testing ground for decentralized versus centralized approaches to medtech regulations. So if if you have a product that is kind of high risk, it's often sub or uses medicinal compounds uh, in in its in its sort of um, in its use, then you are often uh, regulated through a centralized agency called the European Medicines Agency, the EMA, and that is a centralized approach. So what happens is if you approve your product there, you kind of get you you get access to all of the the uh, European Union as long as the European Commission says that the approval is is valid, right? However, there's another approach where it's kind of much more decentralized, where firms go to each member state of the European Union and kind of get approval where they see fit. And, you know, that could, you know, offer interesting lessons. So the decentralized approach may induce competition among regulatory agencies. It could be the case that certain regulatory agencies want to attract innovators. So they might want to compete on how efficient they are in their approval process. And so that decentralized approach may kind of have benefits. Um, it also may allow firms to kind of work more closely with regulatory agencies in different uh, member states to kind of tailor their product to their healthcare system or things like that, right? So there may be benefits there, but then there are also the costs of having to apply to many different member states. Uh, so it is an interesting kind of testing ground for this this decentralized versus centralized approach of regulation. Um, I think there's potentially a lot of interesting research questions that could be asked there. Um, and definitely the two agencies at this point do coordinate a lot with one another. They share data um, and they try to harmonize their two regulations, as we've seen recently. Um, they share scientific advice and, and things like that. So they are in in communication, but they have been historically quite different and there's lessons to learn from that. All right, let's go for a couple more rapid fire questions. Yeah. What important truth do very few of your colleagues agree with you on? Hmm. May, I think many of the, maybe my colleagues might disagree that uh, litigation does indeed has the potential to actually induce more of a, an incentive to, to, for firms to increase product safety than regulation does. Um, I think I've gotten pushback from people about this, you know, does the legal system actually um, work efficiently enough to, to induce this type of incentive? Um, are the adverse event results that you're seeing actually real in the sense that I don't have denominator data, so I can't measure adverse events per utilization. So a lot of this, uh, the, the pushback I've gotten is like, you need to be, you need to do a better job at measuring these these adverse events and, and kind of uh, get a better better measure of product safety in that sense. But you know, I believe these results because first of all, um, litigation has been shown in the literature to have really chilling effects on innovation in the sense that firms it, it looms large in the in the minds of innovators, right? Because it matters. It really cuts into their profit margins. So I think it is a strong incentive for firms to behave well in these markets. Um, and as far as the adverse event results go, you know, I also have patent text analysis that shows that inventors are emphasizing product safety much more frequently in their patents. As far as the utilization goes, you know, the, the denominator data on the adverse events, I find that utilization actually increases in many of these treated products because they're cheaper. And so to the extent that I'm finding decreases in adverse events, that would actually strengthen my my results, right? and I've actually done some supplementary analysis on using device recalls at the FDA and find that recalls also drop after deregulation. So it's it's suggestive at this time at this point, and I'm going to add it to the paper later. So you know, I and I guess the last thing I would say is that the FDA specifically stated when they deregulated these products that they would closely monitor these device types that were affected. So I think. The adverse event counts and results that I have are, are reliable. And so I think ultimately it is hard for people to believe that, that, that these products are actually getting safer 
Um, and I think the onus is on me to show that well, and I've tried my best. I think, you know, I've convinced myself, hopefully I'll convince others uh, with the various ways that I've shown that product safety is improving through patents, adverse events, recalls. And, you know, I think a, a decent amount of institutional knowledge that I've built uh, as I've written this paper. Next question. What is one important scientific article that you think that more physicians should be familiar with? Hmm. So there's this great paper by Sendel Molnathan and uh, Ziad Obermeyer on kind of the benefits of, of AI technologies, like clinical decision support systems relative to kind of physicians' own judgments in, in the clinic. And they show that physicians kind of like rely on what's they call it Oak, Occam's razor, which is uh, a simple model of of patient illnesses. So they they use kind of very obvious factors uh, in in a very simple model to kind of predict um, whether a patient will have stroke a stroke, for example. And then the AI system is able to kind of use a much more complex model because I mean hey, we're all human. We use heuristics because it's hard to use all of the variables that are available to us. And they show that this, that this AI algorithm does a much better job at both decreasing overutilization of medical uh, care and increasing sort of, and, and ameliorating underutilization. So it, it is able to find the patients for whom the risk is highest of a certain disease. Um, and then it's over. it's able to decrease spending for the patients for whom testing or a stroke, for example, uh, or cardiac cardiac um, uh, events is is lowest, right? And so it's it's better able to kind of navigate this the, this, the risk distribution of patients and and assign care accordingly. Uh, I really like this paper because it kind of shows uh, the benefits of AI in the space, and I think the benefits of potentially kind of incorporating AI technologies into physician workflow. Um, I think in a compelling way, right? I think the one, I think there are drawbacks to that though, because it's one thing to show that a technology works uh, in vitro. Uh, it's another thing to show that it, that it works when you actually implement it in the hospital. I've been working with some great co-authors here at UCSD who are developing a sepsis prediction algorithm. And we've been doing some kind of paper on kind of what the, what this kind of implementation layer looks like. And it's really, first of all, it's really hard to kind of have uh, a technology that interacts with 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 doctors and nurses in kind of a in in a positive way, right? It, it's in one, it, it's it would be kind of annoying, for example, to have an EHR that's kind of always beeping and alarming at you for every last little illness that it suspects is is present in a patient. And so, I think the the next question is kind of like, how do we implement these technologies well? in a way that helps physicians to make better decisions, uh, but then also helps the patients themselves. Uh, and I think that's that's certainly an open question about how to do that right. Um, and I think a, a, a relatively under-researched uh, line, line of inquiry. Yeah, what, one quick comment on that. There's, uh, you know, at the hospital, we do have some alerts that come up about, you know, so for example, like I remember it was at, when I was in the emergency room, I would be, you know, trauma surgery would say, oh yeah, I want you to order me a head CT. And I try to order the head CT and it's asking me all these questions. Like, does the patient have a headache? Does the patient have this? Does the And it's making me answer all these. I'm like, dude, just let me order the thing that trauma surgery wants. I don't need this like clinical decision-making help here. Trauma, where's the button that's trauma surgery is demanding a head CT. And then another thing I see is like, it's constantly having us order the COVID tests uh, even on patients that are dying, it's like, no, this patient does not need a COVID test right now. It's the last thing they need, but it's just automatically trying to order it for me every time I go into their chart. So uh, it's one of those things that I like, like in theory, but have yet to see the 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 practice really uh, uh, pan out and be useful. Yeah, I think that is a huge, huge issue. Um, and so with the sepsis prediction algorithm, what it's doing is it's essentially beeping in the, on the EHR, like I was kind of explaining. And what happens is the nurse is often just clicking X, right? Closing out. Like it's just kind of a nuisance. Like, it's like, I, I need to do something. Like, why is this thing popping up in front of my face? So how do we make AI technologies, clinical decision support systems 
it'll actually move the needle on patient care without overburdening an already overburdened physician population and nurse population, right? So uh, I think that, you know, there is some great data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics on kind of the stagnation of of healthcare worker labor productivity over the last 30 years, like a three-decade phenomenon. And I think part of this is because, first of all, regulations play an important role in kind of how many new technologies are kind of implemented in the healthcare space. It's really just difficult to get these things approved and implemented. But also maybe it's the case that it's really difficult to actually implement these technologies in the healthcare space. And so solving both the issue of regulation and how can we encourage more medical technology innovation that will increase labor productivity in the healthcare space, but also how can we better utilize that that technology and have it implemented in correct ways so that it actually helps physicians as opposed to hurts them uh, with you know annoying beeping alarms and uh, incessant notifications. So I think, yeah, that's the, definitely an interesting point of research and hopefully more progress will be made on that. If you had unlimited funds for a randomized control trial, what would you test? So I think uh, one of my dreams is uh, to work with the FDA to improve the regulatory process. And if I had unlimited funds and unlimited you know, connections, you know, connections at the FDA and otherwise, I would love to to run clinical trial, clinical trials, RCTs in the sense of actually turning the FDA's own process on itself to better improve its own processes, right? Uh, to do randomized control trials about how do we, how do we create an ecosystem in the US in the, in the reg- regulatory framework that is more conducive to innovation, uh, not only to, to lead to more innovation, but innovation that is safer and reliable. And that doesn't disadvantage small and inexperienced firms. And I don't know exactly what that would look like, but some exa- some ideas about this are things like streaming up, streamlining the approval process. Right? You have imagine like a TurboTax for for firms. Right? We're all doing taxes right now, and it's it's a pretty streamlined way of of getting through these processes. And imagine something like that for medtech firms with FDA regulation. Having a very user-friendly workflow, very transparent, I think would go a long way. Doing experiments with the FDA, running RCTs and, and piloting these kinds of things would be super, uh, super fulfilling and I think would go a long way in allowing the FDA to establish an evidence base for its own decision-making. You talked earlier about the fact that uh, the FDA faces a lot of backlash Right. I mean, one way to to allow them to overcome that backlash is for them to draw on a, a pool of of evidence to, to suggest that they you know, this is why we're doing it the way we're doing. Uh, and so I think that turning the FDA on itself and, and piloting new approaches uh, to to make their own process safe and reliable, uh, I think, is something that is would be an RCT. I would be very excited to run if I had the money and connections. And last question is, what is the next big project for Parker Rogers? Yeah, so the next project that is, I think, most related to what we talked about today is looking at the effects of deregulation on uh, FDA deregulation specifically on healthcare costs, availability, and patient care. So in my job market paper, I've kind of left out exactly how these different uh, these policies affect you know all the different players in the healthcare supply chain. We've just acquired data and a lot of funding from generous uh, partners to measure exactly how these deregulation events will affect the interaction between medical device manufacturers and hospitals, and between hospitals and insurers, and then ultimately how that plays out in more affordable care that is potentially more accessible to patients and whether or not that changes the actual quality of the care that patients receive. So I think it's a it's an interesting step in the right direction to, to further map out the effects of, 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 of FD regulations on the healthcare supply chain. I have a couple other papers. You know, one is about the effects of Medicare price reform on innovation and firm 
firm kind of dynamics and behaviors. Uh, really excited about that project. Stay tuned for more. And I have a an interesting, I kind of I'm interested in another set of projects as well that are more related to kind of the US social safety net uh, and the effects of affordable housing, which is kind of much more tangential than what we've talked about today, but um also kind of more more to come on that as well. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the External Medicine Podcast. For those people who are just listening, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, so I have a Twitter. I'm not super active. Um, it's at Parker underscore ROG. Um, but, you know, I'll post my research when it's available. So feel free to stay stay in touch there and, and to reach out. Um, I have a website as well, parker-rogers.com. Send me an email. Um, happy to communicate. And yeah, excited about pushing forward this, this research agenda. And, and uh, thank you guys for having me. Thanks so much, man. Have a good rest of your day. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. We do not endorse any healthcare providers or treatments. Our views do not represent the views of any official organization or institution. If you'd like to support us, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, preferably a phenomenal review. Visit us at externalmedicinepodcast.com and tell your friends. 